We are in a, in a little two-week series, um, really picking up where we left off in the reading this morning, uh, following what we would normally read as the Christmas story. The Christmas story actually continues beyond where we normally read. And last week, uh, we, we looked at this man, Simeon, and we're going to continue on from there. But, it, but if I asked you to name people in the Christmas story, you wouldn't have trouble coming up with a good list of people to name. You'd think of Mary and Joseph immediately. Certainly, you'd think of, of the baby, of Christ. You, you would think of the angel Gabriel, perhaps. Um, you, you would think about the shepherds and the hosts of angels that appeared to them, pronouncing to them the birth of Christ. You might think about the wise men, although they came much, much later in the story, but we have them in all our nativity scenes, so they've in our minds become part of the story. You might think about Zechariah and Elizabeth and John the Baptist as a part of that story. You might even think of wicked Herod and the atrocities that, that he wrought because of the birth of Christ. You might even think about Simeon, who we talked about last week. But would, would the old lady come to mind who prayed for decades without answers to her prayer when you think of the Christmas story? Would you remember this widow whose name is Anna? Anna is really a forgotten part of the Christmas story. It's something we just sort of glance over. It's an, it's an odd little addition inserted into Luke chapter 2. Anna is not featured, I trust, in any of our nativity sets, even though the wise men who came much, much later in the scenario are there, and I'm not saying they, they oughtn't be there or we ought to go home and smash those figurines when you get home if you have one. Certainly don't do it to ours back here. <laughs> Anna gets, though, very, very little attention. She takes up very little real estate in our minds and even in our Bible reading. That's probably exactly how she would want it. But Anna plays a beautiful role in the Christmas story. Anna, when she saw the infant Jesus, knew in that instant that all of her prayers had been answered, all of her waiting was over, this promised redeemer had, had come, and, and Anna's story really, really encapsulates what Christmas is all about. She, she's a powerful witness to the true identity of Christ. She is a wonderful example for us to follow. Really, the words of that last uh, hymn that we sang, uh, one of my favorite Christmas hymns of all time, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, that's it's even set in a minor key that has this feeling of longing and, and waiting for something to be fulfilled. That really sums up Anna's life and her existence. And the only thing we have that tells us about Anna are three verses right here in Luke's gospel. Just three little verses. And so let's read those together in Luke chapter 2, starting where we left off last week. So we'll be starting in verse 36. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Thank you for sending your son to live and to die and to rise again. It gives us such hope and joy at this time. 
Lord, I pray that, that as we consider your word together this morning, as I proclaim your word this morning, that your spirit would accomplish all of your good purposes in our hearts, causing that which is dead to live and blinded eyes to see, giving hope to your people, causing us to have joy in our salvation and you, our saving and ruling God. I do pray for myself, Lord, as I proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we heard from that familiar passage in the opening verses of Luke earlier this morning, Caesar Augustus had issued a decree. There was a census that was to be taken throughout his whole kingdom. And so Mary and Joseph had traveled from Nazareth, where they lived, back to their ancestral home in Bethlehem in order to be registered for this census. And as we all know the story very well, Mary was quite pregnant uh, as they made this trip and actually gave birth while they were in Bethlehem. Now, Joseph and Mary were likely very, very young, at least by today's standards. By that day's standards, they were about the right age for Marian. Uh, but if we really consider their ages, it sounds a little scandalous, at least to those of us who have kids that age. Mary was probably 12 or 13. Joseph would have probably not been more than 14 or 15. That's not how it looks in our movies of nativity stories, and we've got this mid-20s couple, well-established, traveling. No, by today's standards, these are kids, but this is the age people got married at in the Jewish community in those ages, so we have every reason to assume Joseph and Mary fell into those categories. So they were young teenagers, but despite their youth, they were spiritually mature. They were devoted to God. They were obedient to God. And so eight days after the birth of Jesus, in obedience to Scripture, they had him circumcised, as, we, as Mel read for us this morning. But then following that, the law also required something else, that, that 40 days later, the family's firstborn son needed to be dedicated to the Lord. They needed to dedicate him to the Lord and then redeem him back at the temple by making an offering. And so Joseph and Mary did what the law of God required of them. They traveled uh, really what was a pretty small trip, about five miles from Bethlehem to Jerusalem to dedicate Jesus, to offer their sacrifices. Jesus is about a month and a half old then when this scene is playing out as they come into the temple and when they get to the temple, they meet two individuals. The first one we met last Sunday, Simeon. Simeon, who's described as a righteous and devout man. Simeon, who, who Luke says was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He says the Holy Spirit was upon him. And when Simeon saw Jesus in the temple, and remember as, as we see these scenes of Simeon and Anna, there's a lot going on in the temple. There's a lot of people there. And yet Simeon sees this young couple with their young baby, and he knows exactly who that baby is. And so we read in chapter 2, verse 28, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation and that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles, for glory to your people. Israel. You can just hear the joy in his words. Joseph, as he, as he preached to us last week, beautifully walked through this, the, the joy in Simeon's heart in seeing Jesus and saying, I can die happy now. I, I know that the Redeemer has come. You can, 
You can hear the joy in his expression that salvation has come, but then his tone quickly changes in verse 34. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce your own soul so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Simeon's tone quickly changes. With the dawn of light, there will also be darkness. With this joy, there will also be suffering. Not all of Israel is going to rise with the coming of this Redeemer. Some are going to fall, and he says to Mary that she herself is going to experience such an intense pain that it would be like a sword piercing her own soul as she would watch her son rejected, and murdered. And he says the hearts of many would be revealed. Now, I'm not attempting to re-preach Joseph's sermon from last Sunday, but we have to see the mood and the tone that's going on as Anna comes in the scene. This expression, the hearts of many would be revealed, it always means something bad in the heart is being revealed. Jesus is going to expose people Jesus is going to expose people's hearts, what's really going on in their hearts. And not long after this, as we know the the full story of the incarnation of Christ, we see this begin to happen immediately as, as Matthew tells us about Herod, hearing that these rumors that the Messiah would be born and ordering the slaughter of all the young boys across the entire region. And really, that was just the beginning. One day, the whole world was going to come against Christ. The whole world was going to come against this child that was standing in front of Simeon. As if all of creation was turning on its maker, they would publicly execute Jesus on the cross. So Simeon's rejoicing quickly turns into this dark, somber note of the trouble that's coming. But in Luke 2, after Simeon speaks, really while he's finishing saying that, another witness steps forward, an old woman named Anna. And her testimony is that despite this coming darkness, despite the pain that surely will come, God's promises to his people will not fail. Because Jesus was indeed the Redeemer. This is cause for celebration and worship, despite the pain that lies ahead, despite the sorrows that this world has to offer. Because Jesus is the Redeemer, because he has come, there is cause for celebration and worship. And so it's no coincidence that her testimony comes directly on the heels of the dark note that Simeon is sounding. They needed to hear that word that Simeon had to speak to them but, but God, in his kind providence, brings Anna in right on the back end of that because they needed to hear what Anna had to say, and we need to hear what Anna had to say. Anna's testimony is, as she comes in and Simeon has just finished striking this dark note, and Anna comes in and says, yes, but. Yes, darkness is coming, but light has dawned. Light has come. So she said, we see there in verse 36, there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. Luke calls Anna a prophetess. What, what does that mean? What does it mean that Anna was a prophetess? Well, 
When we hear that word, prophet or prophetess, we normally have something that comes to mind and it has something to do with telling the future, doesn't it? God spoke to me and he said, tell you this. That's not necessarily the case here. There's a couple different ways that scripture uses this word. A prophet is always a speaker of God's truth. One who who speaks forth, proclaims God's truth. In some cases in scripture, we see this being direct revelation revealed from God. Right? So we see that with Simeon. Here's what's going to happen with this child. Here's what's going to happen, Mary, in your own soul. Perhaps they're telling a future event because the Lord has revealed it to them. That's not the only way scripture uses this word. A prophet could also be one who is just a proclaimer and a teacher of God's truth. That's how it's used in 1 Corinthians 14. In fact, it has commonly been used this way. I have on my bookshelf in my office a book from the 17th century from a Puritan named William Perkins, and it's called The Art of Prophesying. It's a book about preaching. So, so preaching has been called prophesying from the time of Scripture all the way forward. But here's the thing we need to keep in mind as it comes to Adam. Both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, a prophet is always one who is a speaker of God's truth. They are communicating God's word. And so Anna was a woman who spoke God's word. Doesn't mean she necessarily foretold the future. It doesn't necessarily mean that she did any public teaching whatsoever. It does mean that she spoke God's truth. So, for example, we see just one Old Testament example that I think uh, helps us understand Anna a little bit more. Isaiah's wife in the Old Testament is called a prophetess. There's no evidence that she uttered any prophetic word or ever did any teaching of any kind. What she did was give birth to a baby, and that baby's name was prophetic. And so she gets called a prophetess because of that. That's probably the best way to understand Anna's title of prophetess. She wasn't known for her ongoing prophetic ministry. Instead, it's that at this very moment, in this very hour, in God revealing to her who Jesus was, she became a prophetess by proclaiming God's truth about the child Jesus. She was moved by God to speak God's word the moment she saw Jesus, just like Simeon was. And so in that moment, both Simeon and Anna were prophets, revealing God's truth to God's people because of a revelation they had received from God. It's striking, really, that Luke doesn't actually record any of the words that Anna said. There's no quotes from Anna here like there are with Simeon. He doesn't record Anna's words. We never hear her voice. We only get a summary of what her words must have been. That likely indicates that, that this is the case that with her, that Her prophetic ministry was not an ongoing one, that it was in this moment in recognizing Jesus for who he was and telling people about it. And one reason perhaps why Luke doesn't actually record any words of Anna's is that her life speaks more loudly than her words. What we needed from Anna, what we really needed to know about her and what God has seen fit to preserve for us in Scripture is what she did rather than the specifics of what she said. 
So this is Anna, the prophetess, speaking, proclaiming God's truth. She was the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. Why do we get this detail included? Who's Phanuel? We don't know. This is all we know about him right here. He had a daughter named Anna. Phanuel's only mentioned to tie Anna into this tribe of Asher. Asher, as a tribe, of course, of the the 12 tribes of Israel, Asher was a fairly insignificant tribe. Nothing was outstanding about Asher. The only thing we can really glean from them uh, that, that was a standout from the Old Testament is they were apparently incredibly skilled at cooking good food and that they were the favorite tribe of all the other tribes, which sort of goes together with the good food, I suspect. Uh, At least it does in my mind. Nothing outstanding about them. But when Israel was split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom following Solomon's reign, ten northern tribes banded together, and Asher was among them. And these were exceedingly wicked and godless tribes. They they had ungodly king after ungodly king, and they, they were the first to be carried off into exile by God. God moved the Assyrians to come in and destroy them and carry them off into slavery. And once they were destroyed and carried off into slavery, these ten tribes are known as the lost tribes of Israel. Because once the Assyrians came in and swept them away, we never heard from them again. But before that happened, there were some There was a remnant from each tribe that migrated from the wicked northern kingdom to the somewhat less wicked southern kingdom. The southern kingdom at least had godly kings on and off, which which would have been Judah and Benjamin, these two tribes. And and the north and the south did not like each other, but some in the north said, there's so much wickedness here, I want to be obedient to God. And they migrated south. They wanted to return to the Lord. They wanted to flee the ungodliness of the north. And we see that here in Anna's story. Although the tribe of Asher is lost, Anna can trace her roots to the tribe of Asher because her ancestors are those who left the north and came to the south in obedience to God. So we have every reason to believe from the testimony of Anna's life that she was raised in a godly home that feared the Lord, that worshiped the Lord. So why does Luke bother to tell us about this? Why does Luke bother to, it's an interesting thing for a few of us, but why does Luke tell us this about Anna? Well, Anna is about to make an announcement, an incredibly important announcement. She is proclaiming who it is that just came, who it is that has has arrived in the temple. This announcement of the hope of Israel is coming from the mouth of a woman whose tribe has No hope. They've been wiped off the face of the earth. There's a small remnant of people left who can even identify themselves. She has no earthly standing whatsoever. This elderly widow came from an insignificant northern tribe, a tribe that had been completely destroyed over 700 years earlier. And it's from her lips that this declaration comes, Israel's Redeemer has come. Really, all throughout the Christmas story, all throughout Scripture, really, God bypasses the high and mighty. God uses insignificant people. God chooses to work through the little people like Anna. 
Anna really has nothing going for her in this story. An elderly widow from a non-existent tribe. And this is who God picks. Look how Luke describes Anna, verse 36, as we continue on. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She was advanced in years. Literally, literally the expression is, she was very old in her many days. This expression is used a number of times in scriptures. It's what they call a Hebraism, a Hebrew expression that we find several times in the Old Testament. It's used in reference to the extreme age of Abraham and Sarah and Joshua. It's a way of really emphasizing old age and saying there's no youth left in her. There is absolutely nothing of her youth and vitality that is still in this woman. He is emphasizing here, she is very old. Now, you might be hearing this and going like, it says she's 84. I'm 84. (laughs) Or I'm knocking on the door. You better just watch it up there. The issue is not, now, 84 at that time is old, let's be honest, but... um, Luke's point is to emphasize something about Anna. She's got nothing going for her. She's she's at the end of her life. She's from a nothing tribe. She's been a widow her whole life. And so he wants to make a point to us. This is an old woman. It's not just that she's an old woman, she's a widow. What's more, she became a widow only seven years after her marriage. So remember, Jewish girls commonly marry between the ages of 12 and 14. So she'd have been in her early 20s at most when she became a widow. And we see here, he says, she remained a widow for the rest of her life. She was a widow until she was 84. Now, there's actually a a, a bit of a translation difficulty here. That expression could mean she was a widow for 84 years, which would make her over 100 years old. Possible, but not very likely. Um, At the very least, she's 84 years old. She's been a widow for over 60 years at minimum. Can can you imagine? There's not a lot of opportunity for a widow for a single woman in that day. The the trials, the temptations she would have overcome as a widow for that long were likely very, very great. She would have had a very difficult life, a life defined by difficulty. There's so few opportunities for women, but even fewer opportunities for widows. Her life must have been defined by great hardship. What What did she do all that time as a widow? How did she manage to survive all that time as a widow? Well, as we go on in verse 37, we see this. She did not depart from the temple. What did she do all that time? How did she survive all that time? She didn't depart from the temple. Now, now we don't need to press Luke's words here to mean that she never, ever walked outside the temple courtyard. She never left the temple It doesn't even mean she had to have lived there, although it's possible that they saw this um, elderly widow and gave her an apartment in the 
court of women. It's, it's conceivable, but I don't think Luke is intending us to go so far as that. It's, it's most natural to take this as hyperbole. It's like saying of someone, he's always at work. He never leaves. He's there day and night all the time. Well, we don't mean that in the most literal sense, that he lives there and has not been outside the door. We just mean he's there a lot. He's there more than the average person is at work. His life is consumed by his work. His life is somewhat defined by his work, much more than the average person. And that, what they're saying of Anna is Anna is at the temple all the time. Anna's days and nights were spent in the temple. She was a fixture there. Everyone came to know her, and she came to know them. Day after day, evening after evening, you could find Anna in the temple She was there because she wanted to be there. She was there because she loved to be there. She was like David who cries out in Psalm 84, verse 2, my soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. Anna was always in the temple. She didn't desire to be anywhere else. So Luke says she didn't depart from the temple. Her heart never departed from the temple. She was always there. What did she do every day, every night at the temple? He goes on, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. She devoted her best years. She devoted the decades when she was young. She devoted the decades when she was old to the worship of the Lord. Luke says, with fasting and prayer. Anna came to the temple to pray each day, Anna often fasted clearly by the language he uses here. Her her prayers were many. Her prayers were fervent. Her prayers were constant. She did it day after day. Luke says she did this night and day. Now for a widow like Anna, who doesn't have much going for her, she doesn't have someone to support her, she doesn't have a husband She's now well beyond the age of doing any kind of physical labor. Just about the only pleasures she could have in this world were getting to eat meals, getting to eat food that tasted good. It's probably about all she had going for her. But, but how does Luke tell us she worshiped the Lord? With fasting and prayer. She denied herself the pleasures of this life in order to worship God. Now, if she was just starving, Luke wouldn't call it fasting. So she's intentionally not eating food in order to worship God. It's, these are likely the only pleasures she has in her life. It's all she has to offer God, and so she offers it to him. She gives freely, denying herself in worship to God, and, and it appears that Anna did this for some 60 years. This is one of the greatest feats of spiritual endurance that we see in all the Bible. This, this woman whose story is told in three little verses. What, what an astounding thing. This, this old woman, this, this widow, who prayed day after day and night after night with great fervency and fasting for over 60 years and did not receive an answer to her prayers. But day after day, she hoped in God. Day after day, she prayed again. She was undeterred. She was committed. 
She endured, although she had every excuse to quit. How many of us, if we try something for an hour and it doesn't work out for us, go, okay, well, I did what I could do. I mean, how many of us, even in prayer, give, give up on praying for, for that loved one? Maybe a close family member, but you just, just gave up on praying because, well, nothing's ever going to happen. Here's this woman, day after day after day, offering fervent prayers with fasting for 60 years and getting no answer, but undeterred the next day, the next night. She's a woman of incredible devotion to God. And the Lord picked her. There's nobody to be one of the witnesses of the true identity of Christ when he was dedicated at the temple. One of the very first witnesses of Christ. What do you suppose she was praying about for all those decades? What do you think the theme of her prayers must have been for 60 plus years? Well, we learn that, I think, by seeing her reaction to finally seeing Jesus. Verse 38, coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. She came up at that very hour. In other words, while Simeon was still with Joseph and Mary, at that very moment, Anna comes up to them. Consider God's hand of providence in all of this that's happening. Mary and Joseph bring Jesus to the temple to be dedicated the, the, the temple is bustling with people. It's full of people. But as they come, these two individuals seek them out. We don't know that Simeon was an old man. We're not told specifically, but we kind of get the hint that he was. We know that Anna was. These two old Jews come up to them in the temple and testify about the true identity of Jesus. Clearly, God's orchestrating this. God brings these two saints into the path of Jesus when his parents bring him to the temple. And then consider, consider Anna. Consider Anna's mouth, which had been used for decades in, in pleading with God, desperate prayers that God would bring Israel's Redeemer. Now in an instant, she begins to form new words of praise to God, words of celebration, words of rejoicing because that Redeemer had come. All these years, she'd been praying with no answer. 60 plus years of hardship. 60 plus years of unfulfilled prayer. And finally, God reveals to her that the very one she has been praying for has come. What must that moment have been like? Can you imagine anything sweeter? The thing you desire more than anything in the world, and Anna desired the right thing to be that thing she desired more than anything in the world. And then to see the answer to that prayer. So she gave thanks to God aloud, Luke tells us. Of course she did. 60 plus years of waiting for this moment and, it, and it's happening and, and here's Jesus. I'm guessing in this moment that this old woman had more energy than she had had in decades. She, she must have been bouncing off the walls with energy. 
Then she does something else that's interesting. She not only gives thanks to God publicly, she went and told all the people who had the same hope as her, all the ones who were waiting for this Redeemer, that the redemption of Israel has come. The Redeemer has come. I've seen him. There was a remnant left in Jerusalem at this time. The scribes and Pharisees were there, and they were already every bit as wicked, every bit as hypocritical as they would be 30 years later when they would hate and oppose and conspire together, ultimately murder Jesus. But there's a remnant. There are those who are still setting their hope on God. There are those who are still devoted to him, still worshiping him, still praying to him. There are some who are still believing that he would fulfill all of his promises in the Old Testament, that the Christ would come, that he would rescue his people from their sins. And because Anna was there day and night, every day, all the time, she knew all of them. She knew who they were. She knew who the hypocrites were. She knew who the frauds were. She knew the true from the false. She knew the ones who were awaiting the coming Redeemer, and now he was here, the Savior was here. And so she went and found all those people, those people who had the same hope she had, who'd been praying the same prayers that she had been praying. And she told them the good news, the Savior has come. The Savior has come to Jerusalem. Now, I don't think Anna understood all the details of what Jesus's life was going to be like. Even though Simeon prophesied such things about the opposition that would come about men's hearts being revealed, about Mary's own soul, as it were, being pierced through with a sword. I don't think Simeon knew the details of what Jesus' life would be like. I don't think Joseph or Mary, for that matter, knew what the details of Jesus' life would be like. I don't think they knew what it would take for Jesus to redeem sinful man, for him to be the redeemer. Anna didn't know the details, but she knew this one thing. He has come. He has come. This redemption would be a costly one. Jesus would redeem us, but he would have to die in order to do that. To redeem man from the just wrath of God because of our sin, because of our rebellion, he would have to lay down his life. Because we have sinned, And because we deserve God's wrath for our sins, the penalty for our sin, because it's committed against an eternal holy God, that penalty must be paid. It is an eternal debt. It is an infinite debt. The penalty is an infinite and eternal penalty, and it must be paid. Who would have thought that Jesus would step in and take our punishment for us? Who would have ever thought as we think of this holy God with his righteous laws that we have transgressed and shaken our fist in his face that this God himself would step in and take our just penalty for us? Who could have imagined such a thing? Who could dream such a thing? Anna didn't know that. Simeon didn't know that. Joseph and Mary didn't know that. But this is exactly why God sent Jesus. 
because of his love for us. And because he wanted to rescue us from our sins. It's not as though God's hands were, were tied or his arm being twisted behind his back and he just had to do this because he was in our debt somehow. No, he wanted to do this. This was God's plan. This was God's idea. Jesus came willingly. He came to die on our behalf. He came to pay the penalty for our sin so that our sins could be forgiven, so that we could have fellowship with God. This, friends, is the free gift. This is the free gift of salvation that Jesus came to bring. This is the greatest Christmas gift of all time, given to us by God himself. This free gift of salvation is ours if we will turn from our sins, if we will trust wholly in him as our Lord and our Savior. Now, Anna didn't know all that. She just knew that he was the one who would save Israel. She didn't even know all of that picture. Because it's only later that we'd find out that God was here to... He, he, he had sent his son not just to save Israel, but that in Jesus Christ would be the salvation of the world of all who come to him. The gospel is the salvation for all who believe, Jew and Gentile. For all who trust in him, Jesus' gospel is salvation. This news that God has sent his son. So the story of Anna really is the story of Christmas. She celebrated the arrival of the promised Redeemer. That is what she is known for, and that's why we celebrate Christmas, or at least it should be. I've said many times, Christians should be the least curmudgeonly people in the whole world when it comes to Christmas. We should out-celebrate everybody, and I love all of it. I love the trees and the decoration and the, the Christmas songs, not just the beautiful hymns that we sing. I love... I love all of them. I love Santa Claus is coming to town. I love all of them. But there's only one reason to be truly excited about Christmas. Otherwise, it doesn't mean a thing. It's worthless and it's a waste of our time. We celebrate the coming of the Savior into the world. And if that doesn't loom over everything else, then you need to rethink your celebration of Christmas and get rid of all the other stuff until this thing looms large overall and paints all of it and colors all of it. You tracking with me? So my prayer is, if you are here and you have not trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you've not submitted your life to him as your Lord, that this Christmas you'd come to know him. What, what a great week this would be to put your faith in him. What a great week this would be to bow your knee before him. That he, you would come to him, that you would trust in him, that you would submit your life before him, that he would become your savior, your Lord, and that you would rejoice like Anna that the savior has come, that this Christmas would mean something different and more to you than ever before in your life because you, you now realize what it's about and 
And you would rejoice that it's not just the Savior that's come, it's your Savior that's come. For those of us that have trusted in Christ, I pray that this Christmas would be one of joy. Despite the circumstances of the world around us, this world around us is doing everything it can to suck your joy away from you. Everything it can to make you live in fear. Everything it can to make you cower. And friends, we have a reason to rejoice. That you'd have joy despite the circumstances of the world. This Christmas would be one of thanksgiving as you take the time to meaningfully celebrate what Christmas is. These these words that we heard earlier, born this day in the city of David is your Savior, Jesus Christ, the Lord. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for the glories of your gospel. Thank you for the hope that your gospel brings, the joy that your gospel brings, that you sent your son. Lord, we thank you for our sister Anna and her beautiful testimony of faithfulness. Lord, in this day, we we need a testimony like that. It's easy for us to lose heart. It's easy for us to become fearful. So Lord, would you cause our hope in you to grow? Would you cause us to look to you, the author, the finisher of our faith, the one who is faithful to every promise that he has made, the one who created us and sustains us and has given to us eternal life by his spirit. And I do pray, Lord, for those who, who don't know you, have not trusted in your son, that you would, in your mercy, by your spirit, grant to them the gift of repentance and faith. They would come to you in submission and surrender and trust. Lord, that you would save them and they would know the joy of being your son, your daughter, reconciled to you, our great God, through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your great love for us, your people. We rest in you. We trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.